what did you make of both the film O.J. Made in America and the response to it? Oh, it was tremendous. Uh, Ezra Edelman, who's the son of Marion Wright Edelman, uh, he comes at this with a particular uh, political perspective that guided the project and is what made it so clear. Uh, you compare and contrast that to The Last Dance. I mean, imagine if O.J. had final cut on Made in America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Dave Zirin. He is the sports editor of The Nation. He is, I think, one of the most interesting voices speaking about the, the intersection of sports and culture and politics. And you know, we didn't have a lot of time, but I think we sort of covered where, where sports is right now, grappling with the pandemic, um, stumbled down a pretty fun rabbit hole with Fallen Champ, which has been one of my favorite documentaries about Mike Tyson, directed by Barbara Koppel. Um, yeah, this was, this was a fun one. Tourist information is going to move in the direction of uh, some people like Zyron, I think. We've got Errol Morris coming up, The New Yorkers, John Lee Anderson. Uh, it's fun to have some of these, these big hitters come on um, looking at the culture and, and finding them grappling like we all are with just a, a very changing world out there. So I hope you enjoy Dave's Iron. So, okay, I mean, everybody's shut at home. Um, they've bumped this documentary ahead. What do you make of a documentary like this about such an icon? I mean, you're a little older than I, I am, but... Uh, where you need to have participation in the in the production by Michael Jordan, he owns the footage, and you get something like this, not masquerading as journalism, but not op not being all that open and transparent about the hagiography. And Ken Burns yeah. has come out to criticize it. Like, what do you make of a a ten part sort of? I felt like it was a bit like Louis C.K. wanting to masturbate in front of me, except it was Michael Jordan excusing a lot of what struck me as like a real cautionary tale for people to see. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't journalism. Uh, Ken Burns is right. Uh, any documentary where the protagonist has final cut of the product isn't something that we should trust wholeheartedly. It's something we should look at askance. And I think that it was an effort to extend Michael Jordan's brand into the 21st century. Um, this is meant to evoke a lot of Jordan nostalgia and put to bed any sort of idea that LeBron James is his equal or superior. I mean, the very idea that they would even unearth this footage, which, by the way, wasn't even all that revealing from 1998. Um, you know, you have this footage in, you know, in, inside a trunk for over 20 years. I think you expect it to have a little more than just, uh, you know, Michael Jordan walking from a bus to the locker room and from a locker room to the bus. Uh, but, you know, you know, it's, I mean, and when they would talk about, like, really revealing intimate moments, like in the last episode where they spoke of Phil Jackson uh, lighting 
everybody's statement on fire inside of a can as this kind of ritual. I mean, that, that, that would have been a hell of a powerful visual, and I thought it said something that that visual didn't make the final cut because the camera probably wasn't even allowed there. So the camera saw what it was supposed to see and didn't see what it wasn't supposed to see. So, um, you know, and I think what you said about seeing it as a cautionary tale, I mean, I, I also saw it as a cautionary tale, but I think it totally depended on the viewer's perspective coming in. Uh, for people who want to sort of exalt in all things Jordan, the documentary gave gave them that. It was not a critical look at Michael Jordan. And um, and in many ways it was, I thought, kind of sad in the end. Uh, this person, that's what I wrote about um, for the nation. I mean, this idea of somebody who conquers the world but then finds himself uh, alone. I mean, it's remarkable that he's 57 years old, has been involved in the world of basketball for 40 years. And who are his friends in the basketball world? Who are they? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to name them based on that documentary. So I think that's, you know, Scottie Pippen's not a friend. I mean, people respect him or people loathe him or people fear him. But the absence of human connection, I think, said a great deal. I mean, when you think of LeBron James, just to make one last point, you think of, um, you know, like the banana boat. You think of him hanging out with Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony. I mean, there, there's a group that knows each other and likes each other and cares about each other. And the absence of that in Michael Jordan's uh, circle is noticeable. And how small that circle is is noticeable. I mean, you point out that there's no footage of his wives and the entire thing is interesting. And you get more footage of his emotional connection to his bodyguards than his children. Yeah. And I don't think we saw any... I mean, you could... You know, some might say, well, maybe they weren't supposed to be a part of it or didn't want to be a part of it. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what the story behind the scenes was, but, I mean, it was very striking that the kids were in it. I mean, and how much did they really have to say about their dad? I mean, they said, wow, it really sucked to play in Utah because the fans were really loud. And that's all we really got. And you have to assume that if the kids had given more than that, uh, that would have made the final cut. So this is somebody who's very much at a remove of the people who uh, he's supposed to be closest to. And again, the, the the contrast with LeBron is not favorable when you think about, you know, LeBron being there with his kids and or Kobe, the late Kobe Bryant being there with his daughter. I mean, you you don't really have stories like that with Michael Jordan, and that's fine and good. But you know, it's difficult to not be a little bit judgmental about it because this is the greatest athlete in the history of the world, supposedly. This is the greatest global icon in the history of the world, according to ESPN. And, and so what, what is his life at the end of the day? I mean, his life is, I mean, to me, looked kind of lonely. It almost reminded me of a monkey's paw situation where you make the wish and it turns out so terribly because what's his life? You know, he's a billionaire who gets to own the Charlotte Hornets you know, a, a second-rate franchise in a third-rate market that is not necessarily terrible but is always mediocre. And that's his life now. He has to lord over this mediocre team in Charlotte, North Carolina. I think there's a, there's a sadness to that as well. I kept thinking about, well, I mean, a couple of things that jumped out at me. I'd like to know what you thought. Like Kobe Bryant's death and the way that he 
was able to sort of redeem his reputation after what happened in Colorado with the rape and confessing misdeeds. I mean, just such a sordid, dark chapter. And I mean, even the way he handled the aftermath of, of being arrested and stuff, mm-hmm. it was really frightening how transactional he made it seem. Yeah. But, but I mean, the connection he had with his daughter, that that's sort of the new narrative. I was just thinking about how people were responding to his death. Like how much of it was about what Kobe Bryant meant to them versus that they grew up with him. Like, because it seemed almost on the level of like Muhammad Ali's funeral. And yet Ali had such a connection to his time and the values of his time and, you know, standing up in during Vietnam and, representing a lot more than just himself. Like, Ali was very difficult to brand throughout most of yeah. his career, which is interesting. And yet Kobe, I don't know, seemed very much to be trying to, to be almost a kind of karaoke of, of his idol, Michael Jordan. Like, what, mm-hmm. what, 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 what kind of takeaways did you have from Kobe's funeral or Ali's funeral or, or people similar to what this thing we're talking about with Jordan, where it's all about money and what you've acquired versus what you've given as a result of your legacy. Like, I don't know if Ali is the perfect example, but it seems a little more emblematic of something meaningful beyond net worth. Well, I was at Ali's funeral. It was one of the most remarkable events I'd ever been to. And you you can't compare Kobe's funeral to Ali's funeral because, um, I mean, Ali's funeral, I mean, tens of thousands of people came to Louisville, Kentucky to stand along the street and cheer his uh, limousine, his hearse as it went by. And I was there. I witnessed it. I filmed it. I spoke to people who were there. And, you know, Kobe's funeral, I think, got a lot of people to come out and leave remembrances, but a lot of that was, I think, the shock of Kobe's death needs to be factored in here. I think if Kobe had lived to be 80 years old and passed away, you wouldn't have that same kind of reaction. I mean, it was right. an utter, utter shock sure. to have Kobe die when he did and how he did. I think that marks it as a very different kind of a situation, especially because Kobe dies at age 41 and it certainly appears like he's about to start a very interesting new chapter to his life, mm. uh, one that revolves around uh, both his family and around uh, certain aspirations around books and film that it looked like he had a real skill at in terms of being able to produce. And in doing that was trying to blaze a new kind of trail. I mean, for people like LeBron James, for example, and people who wanted to be content creators and creatives, uh, in a way that athletes had not been allowed to be before. So Kobe was doing his own kind of trailblazing. And I think his death at 41, just as he was getting started with that, was one of the reasons why there was so much shock upon his death and so much sadness. Um, I also think, and this is a big contrast with Michael Jordan, is one of the things that Kobe did in the last years of his career is he sort of chucked all the Mamba mentality bullshit and tried to actually mentor his uh, teammates and young players in the league. And this is actually a very interesting Ali comparison because one of the things about Muhammad Ali is that he made a real point 
even so hampered by Parkinson's disease, to try to create an indelible memory with people that he met, that he actually gave a shit about them, that he cared, that he um, he wanted them to remember that they met Muhammad Ali, that they met the greatest. Um, and Kobe did something very similar. And so I think part of the outpouring of grief was also people who he'd made this impression upon. And Michael Jordan, that's just not how he's wired. You know, he wants a moat between himself and everybody around him. He wasn't trying to mentor LeBradford Smith. He was trying to destroy LeBradford Smith. Right. Uh, and and that, that's, that's a big difference from Kobe. And it's a big difference from Ali. Um, and I think it's one of the things that marks Jordan's personality and one of the reasons why at age 57, I think he's, you know, I mean, hey, I'm sure a lot of us would like to be pitiable with uh, $2 billion in the tank in an NBA franchise in our, uh, in our, you know, in our possession. But uh, there is something pitiable about Jordan in what seems like his lack of human connection to those around him. And I wonder, I wonder, like, I remember going to Buffalo to report on the 25th anniversary of the Buffalo Bills losing their first Super Bowl. And the first person I bumped into at a diner across the street from the stadium was a woman who said, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? And I mentioned that I wanted to report on, on the city of Buffalo that is the only city I've ever heard of that threw a parade for the losers of, of like a big mm-hmm. event. But they wanted to celebrate them that way. I was fascinated by that. And she said that her daughter had been hit by a truck after studying for a, a test at, co- at her first year at college. And she said, everybody in the town chipped in to help with the medical bills. And she said, I want you to include, there's no city in America that would have supported us the way Buffalo did. And I hmm. thought about that a lot in that Michael Jordan, Jordan seems to stand and wants to stand that winning is everything, very much in the line of Trump. Like, just whatever you need to do to get there, the only immoral thing is to, to not win. Um, mm. Why is it that so often when I'm talking to quote-unquote losers, they always seem so much more self-aware, have so much internality, have so much more compassion for people? Like, aren't those the things that we try to instill in our kids as values to make them better human beings versus this maniacal sociopathic behavior that seems indicative of where Michael Jordan got to, good and bad? Well, it definitely marks Jordan and it definitely marks Trump. Like you said it well, like the idea of failure being really the only vice and anything short of failure, I mean, anything short of success makes you um, somehow flawed. And I think that when the sports... It all depends on how you look at sports. I mean, some people look at sports and do believe that, you know, like the old expression, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And the ends justify any means it takes to get there. There are a lot of people who approach sports that way. But that's not how everybody approaches sports. There's a guy named Joe Ehrman who used to play for the Baltimore Colts who'd be a great interview for your podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. Runs something called the Positive Coaching Alliance. And he talks about how there are two kinds of coaches, the transactional and the transformational. And the transactional end 
the transactional coach is the one who everything, it, every means is to an end. It's all about victory, but what it's really about when you when you nail it down, this is what Joe argues, is that it's about how the coach feels, like how the coach can derive satisfaction from his team doing well. So everything is geared towards how the coach, coach's own ego is built up by the success of the team, and so any means are necessary to get there. The transformational coach is much more focused on the process, like how are people doing? How are people uh, evolving as human beings? How are team sports making for better people? And I think there's a place, there's certainly, that should be, I think transformational coaching should be central to youth sports, even though it's so clearly not. But there's a place for transformational coaching in professional sports as well, in college sports, um, that that would be something that Michael Jordan, you could see him laughing at that like the idea that he had a responsibility to make Dennis Hobson a better player. Like, no, his only responsibility was to see if Dennis Hobson was going to be destroyed or whether he actually had the ability to play. You know, Brad Sellers, the first person who hugs Jordan after he hits the shot against Cleveland. Uh, no, he's there to be destroyed. Or if you get somebody, um, unless he's tough enough to handle it. And then you get somebody like Craig Hodges, who was tough enough to handle Jordan. But Craig Hodges uh, was also somebody who had a lot of problems with Nike and a lot of problems with Michael Jordan's uh, in, seeming inability to take any sort of uh, social or political stance. And Craig Hodges found himself drummed off not only the Bulls, but he was drummed out of the league hmm. as he was getting in the way of Michael Jordan's efforts to conquer the world financially and through his brand. So these, these are all parts of of the Jordan story, which are ugly, which I think the documentary, I mean, in the case of Craig Hodges, he was positively erased from the documentary. But even the snippets about how much it took out of Jordan to win, I mean, he was almost presented as a figure who's deserving of our sympathy. Like, oh, like there was that last scene in either episode... uh, seven or eight, I forget, where um, where Jordan cries at the end when he's talking about how tough he has to be on his teammates and what a toll it's taken on him. And I was just like, those are like the, the tears of of somebody who's committed, I don't want to overstate it, so let me unwind that, but just to say the tears of people who want our pity when they had control to do otherwise. Right. Just how do I you, put it. Do you see some of the DNA of O.J. Simpson's legacy of I'm not black, I'm O.J., uh, taking no involvement in the civil rights, uh, what was deemed in in O.J. Made in America as his seduction by white corporate America. Do you see when Jordan is not vocal about standing up in his home state of North Carolina to a, a vocal white supremacist or not having any issue with Nike and child labor and that sort of thing. Is there something about OJ's quote-unquote uh, success that may have fed into Jordan's mentality? Uh, certainly causally. I mean, there was a whole generation of athletes who'd broken down the doors um, that Michael Jordan was able to go through in order to be a commercial figure, sort of Magic Johnson, one of them, OJ Simpson, one of them, um, I think the direct comparison might be a little harsh only because OJ had the entire revolt of the black athlete right in front of him. 
and mm-hmm. just said hell no to that. Uh, the one thing I really will give to Michael Jordan is that, you know, he came of age in a time where you didn't have political athletes in the same kind of a way. Now, he was so powerful, uh, he, he could have actually changed that entire template by himself. Uh, it just uh, through, through some, you know, calling on Nike to exercise some corporate responsibility in terms of how they made their shoes. Um, he did not do that. He made a different choice uh, than to do that. Uh, but I think, like, Jordan is also, is not just somebody who shaped his time, but he was also was a reflection of his times. Right. And it wasn't a time that, you know, it would have taken a very special kind of a person uh, to stand up to the tides of their time and say, wait a minute, I disagree with where everything is going. I'm not just going to, um, you know, I'm not going to go with the flow. And Jordan did not have that in him. To do. He had no desire to do it. He chose not to do it. And he deserves criticism because of things like with Harvey Gantt, like you mentioned. But it's a little different from OJ, who literally like stood there and put his hand up and said stop to this incredible uh, force that was the black freedom struggle. Um, that, that you didn't have that in Jordan's time or context in the same kind of a way. And I think the docu- that one of the interesting things about the documentary, just one part, was when he did uh, answer the question about what it was like to grow up black in Wilmington, North Carolina, which was something he had never really answered or talked about before. If one wanted hmm. to be cynical, one would certainly say that the documentarian and Jordan made a real point to put that in there precisely so he couldn't be branded with the I'm not black, I'm OJ brush, right? which I, which was probably the line of the OJ documentary. Right. Well, I guess I brought up OJ more in the context of him being by far the defining African-American athlete breaking into white America through advertising, just as Jordan mm-hmm. was you know, the distance between him and the next prominent African-American athlete was miles, you know, with McDonald. I mean, every, the most conservative of corporate America. Um, What did you, what did you make of both the film OJ Made in America and the response to it? I was really taken aback just how incredulous people were to that film, like just to what it raised of the history and the sort of collective amnesia that seemed to be going on about what had happened, just like the, that it was this revelation that, that the filmmaker Ezra Edelman made of the history, the place, race relations in America. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's not frequently that a six-hour, seven-hour documentary gets that kind of viewership and gets engages in that kind of discourse in so many areas of American culture and society. Oh, it was tremendous. Uh, It's the best thing that ESPN has ever done. And uh, Ezra Edelman, who's the son of Marion Wright Edelman, founder of the Children's Defense Fund, uh, he comes at this with a particular uh, political perspective that guided the project and is what made it so clear. Uh, You compare and contrast that to The Last Dance, I mean, imagine if O.J. had final cut on Made in America. I mean, this is Michael Jordan had final cut on The Last Dance. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so you see the difference between journalism and hagiography. I mean, there would be a great documentary to be made. It, it almost certainly now never will be made uh, about Michael Jordan that does actually look at him far more critically and looks at the cost of being that great far more critically um, and looks at what it takes to be a commercial icon in white America more critically and the toll that that takes on you. Uh, that's what Made in America did. I mean, one of its arguments is that one of the things that drove O.J. to the point of uh, psychosis is him having to live this life where he was um, where he was living in multiple masks, living with multiple masks. And you know, it's interesting. Um, Jim Brown's book, Out of Bounds, uh, his memoir. Uh, which came out in the late 80s, he practically predicts O.J.'s fall by mm. talking about that nobody knows, he writes in it, that nobody knows the real O.J. And O.J. is someone who wears the mask. I don't know if he thought it would end with murder, but it was definitely a, um, a perspective on O.J. Simpson that he knew what that this was somebody who was not at peace with himself. There's definitely a documentary to be made about Michael Jordan, about how this is somebody who's not at peace with himself. But that was not this, not by a long stretch. But hey, I didn't even answer your question. I love Made in America. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> well, no, you did. You I did disagree it. with my good. I disagree with my good friend Chuck Modiano, who called it the best sports documentary ever. I think that's going way too far, especially in a world where there are sports docs like Hoop Dreams and Senna. I mean, there are better sports documentaries, but if you're talking strictly about ESCN, it's the best thing they've done. Yeah, and it seems so apart from, you know, like I, I, I wanted to ask you, when you look at, I mean, I want to understand, we don't have a lot of time, but your journey into sports and what you're trying to accomplish looking at these broader issues through the lens of sports, because what seems to be like recently – Spotify bought Bill Simmons' podcast uh, or, or the network, The Ringer, for $200 million or maybe even more. Some have said a quarter of a billion dollars. Where pop culture and sports is used to sort of comfort us and distract us, but not like O.J. Made in America to really shockingly um, use the lens of, of one guy to look at what he has wrought on the culture. I mean... I think even seeing it's not even tangential to look at OJ's legacy and look at a lot of stuff with Trump as well. You know, just behavior being forgiven if you're a celebrity, sure. popular, rich, et cetera. Um, but like, how do you see sports journalism changing since you've been covering it? And, and from OJ made in America coming out with, with ESPN to something like this, I mean, as you say, O.J. Made in America, if, if O.J. had final cut, would be meaningless, presumably. Oh, yeah, unless you were looking at it the way we're looking at The Last Dance, which is like, how does the fact that this person had final cut uh, affect the product, which is its own interesting conversation. True, true. Because it gives sort of a, a Rosetta Stone into what was left out. Uh, sports journalism... Uh, you know, Hunter S. Thompson once described it as like a bunch of uh, jacking off monkeys, um, which I flattering. think is probably a little harsh. What's that? I'm sorry. Flattering. I just said very flattering. Flattering, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hunter S. Um, and it may be kind of true when he was writing that. I mean, 
since I've been doing this, I've been doing this since like 2002, 2003. Uh, it, it's changed dramatically, obviously, from that. Like when I started, the internet was, uh, you know, it was just a, a thought. And then the blogs, like very independent blogs came into play and they really changed uh, how people were doing sports writing. And Bill Simmons was certainly a part of that. Uh, this idea that you didn't have to be limited by word count and that you could, you know, connect with other issues in pop culture. I mean, Simmons wasn't the first to do it by any stretch, but he became the most famous person for doing it. And yet today, what you're seeing is consolidation, uh, which is different. Uh, consolidation being uh, all those small websites have really gone the way of the dinosaur and people's best and wittiest takes are being given for free on social media. Uh, instead of on their own blogs that they can so they can make a living. I mean, you know, I do it too, but it still is one of the things that that blows my mind that people are taking all this creative energy and literally giving it to private corporations uh, for the purposes of expanding their brand instead of a person trying to uh, actually create their own foundation. Um, so it, the consolidation piece, uh, makes me very nervous about the future of sports writing, particularly in the con- I mean, we're having this conversation in the context of a pandemic and a depression. Um, and so it makes me wonder where the jobs are going to come from. It makes me happy I have a job. It makes me curious how long I'm going to have a job. Like all these things sure. play into my um, my insecurity about where all of this is going. And when you see something like a Spotify buy of the ringer, like that wasn't surprising to me. I was like, of course. You know, that's of a piece. That's the times we're living in right now. Um, you know, this is this is big, this is Michael Jordan's world, and we're just living in it. So, you know, there's no thought of Richard for, for I almost said Richard Simmons. There was no thought by Bill Simmons about, you know, what this would do to the Ringer, what would it do to its credibility, what would it do to its future, um, what it would do to you know the young generation of sports writers who d- depend on the Ringer. What it, it's about the goal. Uh, it's about cashing out, and it's about you know living in a world where you keep score on the basis of your bank account, and that's a pretty ugly place. But it's also not a world that Bill Simmons created. It's uh, it's a world that um, that's that that he reflects. I mean, it's the reality of where we are. Uh, it's Jordan's world, and we're just living in it. Well, it just reminds me a bit. I don't know if you're a fan of of the late art critic Robert Hughes, but I mean, that seemed to be the tenor of all his late criticism of the art market is just that he said, I think I'm, I'm the last member of a generation to walk into an, a, a museum and look at a masterpiece and not ask how much is it? Mm-hmm. And, and that the, the biggest unregulated market in the world or after drugs, the biggest unregulated market in the world is art. And that the greatest thing that, art has given us in the last 50 years is just the market itself. And it kind of seems like everything is devolving into that metric being the defining thing. I mean, all the first thing people talk about with film now is it's weekend box office. And I know certainly in boxing, I wanted to just get your sense of the highest paid athlete in the world, um, Floyd Mayweather, with an extensive history of abuse against women. I mean, now, it almost seemed to me like if anybody was auditioning for a role as the 21st century's O.J. Simpson, Mayweather's rap sheet was far worse than O.J.'s at, relative to their age and in their career. 
Like, what do you what do you make of the ascension of sort of money Mayweather, and that you've got a whole legacy of fights that made all this money, so he's a big success and has earned over a billion dollars, and yet nobody is really itching to revisit or make a ten part documentary of pretty miserable entertainment <clears throat> value from those fights. Yeah, absolutely. Terrible entertainment value from those fights. Um, the part of Money Mayweather that I respect is that he's good enough to, to make this money and get out of boxing with his uh, head intact. True. I mean, and that, that was part of his the method of his madness is I'm going to have a boxing career and I'm going to leave it without serious brain damage and you know there's there's no question to me that his father and his uncle schooled him in how to do this that also meant that the entertainment value that Mayweather brought to the table was horrible and his personal life is absolutely wretched and that's why no one would see a 10-part documentary about Mayweather uh, because he's loathsome as an individual and you know like Jordan they show the highlights of his final moments against the Utah Jazz there's no highlights for Mayweather that ranks with that. There's no transcendent sports moment that we can look at. Even boxing fans, I mean, people, I mean, for Jordan, those are moments that exist outside of basketball. Uh, even for boxing fans, where's the transcendent Mayweather moment where you say, ah, that's why everybody loves sports. That's why boxing can still capture the eye. And yet, because of the way boxing is leveraged, to the point where people don't know the fighters and the rankings, the casual sports fan can't tell you anything about the sport, but you still at the top of promotions have these people who can still draw tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it speaks to the, the sickness of how the sport is organized more than anything else, and Mayweather is the grand beneficiary of that. Uh, he's also a, a terrible abuser of women, and that is part of his legacy that should never be erased. And again, that's why you're never going to have a um, 10-part documentary about him with his involvement because, I mean, you would have to go through that and discuss it with him, and that's something that he absolutely will not do, partly because he doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. And just one last thing, like the difference between him and OJ, I mean, part of what made OJ's story so shocking in 1994, and I can say this because I'm older than you, so I was following it at the time, but what made it shocking at the time was that this was OJ, and we thought we knew OJ, mm. and we know Floyd Mayweather, and so what would be shocking is if he came out with a statement against violence against women. That would be shocking from Floyd Mayweather, uh, so it's, it's, it's in many ways a an opposite of, of OJ in terms of uh, who we think them to be. Well, I think Mayweather actually did come out before one fight where an opponent had been charged with domestic assault and said he was dedicating some portion of his purse oh, yeah. to, to victims. Right. <laughs> so there was some... I forgot that. Egregious that hypocrisy. And that was I, shocking. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. You no, know, especially in light of yeah, more more disclosures of of just a litany of women that we know of. Um, I wonder, like, when you started covering, I was thinking this a lot watching the Jordan documentary that Jordan was making about two and a half million dollars a season back in 1988 when Mike Tyson was making 21 million dollars for 91 mm -hmm. seconds, and I wonder just. 
where where has Tyson featured in your interest level with sports or or American well, cultural figures? Well, that's a tough one for me because when I was a kid, little kid, I grew up in New York City. My dad took me to the Felt Four, and I saw this teenager come out with black trunks and a towel over his shoulders to Phil Collins in the air tonight. And that was, of course, Mike Tyson, and it was probably the coolest thing I ever saw. And that was before his, you know, Kid Dynamite Sports Illustrated cover and certainly before he was ever a champion. So I was I was all in at a very early age. And so I've never found him not to be compelling. Um, I think the best documentary, there have been so much uh, ink spilled and film done about Tyson but this, there was a tremendous documentary that came out in 1992, I think, called Fallen Champ, The Untold Story of Mike Tyson. Liz Garbage and, looked, and Leon Gasp. Yeah. Very I good, watched, yeah. I watched it 400 times when I was 14. I was obsessed with it. So good, right? So good. And because it, it goes through the rape case in detail, and then there's that final shot. I can, we can now talk about it like a couple insiders where uh, it, it looks at just the worst parts of Brownsville where Tyson grew up, and it merges it seamlessly into the, the prison in Marion, Indiana. Absolutely. Uh, that Tyson was, was finding as a home. And so it was so good because it didn't cut him any quarter for his rape while at the same time speaking about his upbringing and how, how absolutely torturous it was. So, you know, I, I, Tyson to me remains a very compelling figure. I get nervous about the whitewashing of Mike Tyson, turning him into a cartoon character uh, or everybody's buddy in the hangover and things like that. I think, you know, you, you got to talk about the, the complexities and the horrors of his history to do an honest accounting but it's it's still he's still an interesting figure to me. And so when I see things like Mike Tyson at fifty three years old, uh, talking about some kind of comeback, like I'm not rolling my eyes and saying yeah yeah yeah. I'm reading that story. That's getting my attention. <laughs> That's getting my clicks. Yeah. Partly because just to see it, it takes me back to being you know eleven years old in the Felt Forum and seeing. Uh, you know, the, the baddest man in the world coming out to Phil Collins and how I remember how incongruous that was and then thinking how cool it was <laughs> at think, the same time. For you, like while you've been alive watching sports, covering sports, has he been the most or who has been the most charismatic athlete or intriguing, you know, enigmatic athlete for you to ponder or to explore in your work? a great question because I do a lot of history. So even though Ali was before my time, I'm tempted to say Ali. And even though John Carlos and Tommy Smith were before my time, I'm tempted to say them. Um, Billy Jean King, I'm tempted to say. All these people are before my time, though. Um, so in my lifetime, like going forward, who I write about, um, I've always found the journey of LeBron James to be fascinating just because the bar was set so high when he came into the NBA. And and then when it was clear that he was good enough to meet that bar, then there are a whole set of other expectations, like, oh, is he just going to go for the money like Michael Jordan, or is he going to have something else to say, with everybody assuming it would be like Mike, 
And then all of a sudden, hey, look at that. He has something to say. So I got to say, like, like LeBron is somebody who um, has retained my interest throughout, throughout this time. And then in more recent years, of course, Colin Kaepernick has absolutely retained my interest, although it's a little bit different. It's more about uh, his blackballing from the sport and what that's meant. Now we understand it. That's really captured my, my, my thought process. Like I'm working on a book right now called The Kaepernick Effect where I'm just interviewing high school and college students who took a knee in all kinds of sports, men, women, black, white, all these people who took a knee during the anthem and just talking to them about why they did it and what it meant to them. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't find Kaepernick to be uh, a fascinating figure in that regard. Do you, think, do you think 30, 40 years from now, Kaepernick will, be, will stand out a lot more than he does now? Like, would there be a lot more signal in relation to what he stood for relative to some other athletes? Yeah, I mean, Jamel Hill had a joke about that in 20 years the NFL would deliver an award um, uh, to players based on their political, social consciousness that it would be called the Colin Kaepernick Award Mm. as a way to forget that they blackballed the guy and colluded against him to keep him out of the game. And, you know, that's a joke that has a lot of truth to it. I mean, looking at U.S. history and how people are seen in real time versus then how they're seen years into the future with their political teeth extracted. One of the things that I'm reading this book about Kurt Flood. It came out years ago. I should have read it years ago. called A Well-Paid Slave by Brad Snyder. Uh, It's really good. And one of the points that Brad Snyder makes is, you know, in – Major League Baseball, the rule that says that you have to consent to be traded if you've played in the league for 10 years and been on the same team for five years is called the Kurt Flood rule. So here's this guy who is vilified, drummed out of Major League Baseball, shunned by his contemporaries, and now they actually have a rule regarding your contract that's named the Kurt Flood rule. So Hmm. if you're going to have a Kurt Flood rule, certainly... You're going to have, you can have something that's uh, named after Colin Kaepernick or that recalls Colin Kaepernick or that attempts to whitewash the history of how they treated Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating idea. I'd never heard that before about an award being named after him. But, I mean, isn't it, isn't it always that way after these guys leave? Yeah. Um, the way America has embraced Ali as a secular saint or Martin Luther King both people who were immensely controversial and immensely disliked. I mean, their lives were in serious danger during their lives, but we look back on it. So it always, that, that kind of thing always reminds me of how America looks at Harper Lee's book, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, versus Huckleberry Finn, where in To Kill a Mockingbird, we all, feel, we, we all get flattered that we would have done the right thing, that we would have been an Atticus's family, but there's no arc to Atticus's moral goodness. He didn't, I don't understand mm-hmm. how he learned what racism was or why it was wrong or how he had this enlightened view, whereas Huckleberry Finn does learn and is willing to go to hell because he believes in the hell that the church is telling him and why slavery is okay. And it's fascinating to me that there's something so dishonestly reassuring 
in To Kill a Mockingbird. Like we all mm. feel feel comforted by it in a in a way that we have not earned. Yeah, like, I mean, it's fascinating to me that the theory that Huck Finn is biracial. And oh, that interesting. For, yeah, huh. it was this uh, the thesis that became a book, um, which I, I thought was fascinating. Uh, it accounts for his father's violence towards him. It accounts for his comfort with Jim. Uh, it, I mean, there are a lot of interest, you know, and then the, the writer, I forget who it was, pointed out some passages. And if you really want to read him a certain way and read it from the perspective that Huck is biracial or Huck is passing, for example, not uncommon in that time, sure. that it actually makes sense. Um, but there is an arc to Huck. And the thing about Atticus, is that he's put forward as um, the white person that the that the reader can say, "Well, I'm like them." Absolutely. So it, it's it accounts for the inherent goodness in white people, which allows a narrative about racism to be read in schools and and discussed in this way. Like that. That's what that's what is always, I think, the bar. Is that if you make white people out to be inherently good and the racists in white America to be these outliers uh, who spread this poisonous ideology, then you can then you can have the discussion about race. Sure. But if you have something that says that, well, wait a minute, what if it's not about individuals being good or bad? What if it's about systemic racism that white people who don't take a stand against racism are a party to? Then, then it's a very different kind of conversation. And, I, and that's one of the theories about what made Colin Kaepernick uh, so poisonous to the NFL, is that he wasn't saying white people are inherently good. He was saying the police were inherently bad. Which side are you on? Right. And that's something that makes certainly mainstream white America much more uncomfortable. That's a very good point. I mean, and, and what you're also talking about dovetails for me. I remember reading at the time when Germany was petitioning to join in on VE Day, saying we were liberated too. And it was like, wait a minute, like this kind of historical revisionism that it like it's going to be reduced to one guy was evil and everybody was bullied by him in order to do these atrocities, which is just a very dangerous way of looking at the legacy of these evils that were perpetrated. And that that uh, and, yeah, and, and you're you're saying this, but that 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 of course makes it seem like the people of Germany uh, were liberated because right. they're they're somehow blameless, right. and, uh, <laughs> and that's that's just bad history. <laughs> and I have to apologize. I said Liz Garvis. It was Barbara Koppel who was the director. It was Barbara Koppel. That's so right. I, I, it was Barbara Koppel. So. That was not an intentional slight. I like both of them a lot, but it was Barbara Koppel. Yeah, it was Koppel coming right off of, I think it was the first project she did after uh, American Dream, which was an Oscar winner. And that was, uh, that was one of the things that I loved about it at the time. But God, I love that. I honestly watched it, Dave, about 9,000 times. I used to watch it every morning, 4 o'clock in the morning before I'd try to imitate Mike Tyson and run for four miles every day. That was my little inspirational half hour. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I would, I would like have people watch it and, um, 
and reckon with it. Like I would like bring, like I was a, a freshman at college. I'd bring people to my dorm room and be like, all right, everybody needs to watch this and then say what they think. And people were like, dude, you're taking this way too seriously. And I was like, no, we're going to watch this. What was really interesting, was, I mean, it, Alan Dershowitz is the in Farrakhan there. Farrakhan stuff. Yeah, the Farrakhan stuff. Al Sharpton's in there. I thought it was a very interesting dialectic even about the rape trial because, I mean, mm-hmm. at the time, I mean, I was a little kid. I, I was, uh, the rape trial was, what, 19... 19- 91, so I'm 12, 11, 12 years old, and it was just like the way it was portrayed in the media is clearly he did it, and to learn, I'm not saying he didn't do it, I'm just saying there was a lot of nuance to that case and a lot of different sides of them interviewing feminist groups and anti-rape groups and interviewing the bodyguards of Mike Tyson that, that was interesting to allow for a lot of nuance that I don't know that a male filmmaker would have introduced that kind of stuff so it was Mm -hmm. uh, a very dense intriguing ambiguous film for my 11 year old mind yeah oh my god i can't imagine the um and strongly featured was uh, someone who i want to know where she is now uh, sonia steptoe who was black woman writing sports for the new york times yeah what the heck happened to sonia steptoe well a lot of people have some stories to tell I'm sure, I mean, that's something that I don't feel as though the Tyson rape trial, I mean, Desiree Washington just vanished off the face of the earth. Vanished. Absolutely vanished. And, and wasn't she remarkable? She came off very strong. Fascinating woman. Yeah. And her father was interviewed in that, in that documentary as well. I mean, we should do a pod where we rewatch it and then discuss it. I would love to. And, um... I will, I will divulge to you. Um, I know where where Desiree Washington is. I did look into it. I'm not going to pursue it. I'm not going to, you know, like she deserves okay. her privacy. But um, I think she's doing very very well. So I was Good. I was just so curious about it. I've not I've not reached out to her, but I did. I did just my curiosity from that film made me kind of obsessive to sort of figure out what happened here. And um, I think wow. professionally, personally, she's doing very well. But I, I wonder, just yeah. like you, I've never heard of any of the people who were in that documentary who were so compelling talking about the case and Tyson. Yeah. Where did they go? Where did they go? I know you've got to jump off. I'm really appreciative of your, your time, Dave. Thanks so much for, for making time doing this, and I, I hope you stay safe. No, thank you, and I'm, I'm sorry I, I, I didn't have more time. Of course. Um, thank but, you so much, Dave. Luke, let me know when it's live, please. I will do. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Brent. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salada.